and turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 29. The scripture reading this morning is going to be verses 1 through 14. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find a Bible that's on the rack in front of you. And Jeremiah 29 is on page 779. Now, what we've been doing this fall is we've been doing a survey of the ministry of Jeremiah. And as, as pastoral careers go, uh, Jeremiah had a long and mostly uh, pretty frustrating tenure as a prophet. It was, uh, he ministered in the, uh, the last days of the southern Jewish kingdom of Judah. And at this point, where we are with Jeremiah 29, Judah has now been invaded by Babylon on a number of occasions. They've come in. Babylon is the now dominant power in the region. And a large number of the influential members of the Jewish population have been shipped off, shipped out of, of Judah now to live in Babylon in exile. And now, now Jerusalem, Jeremiah is in Jerusalem still, and what he does is he sends a letter, he smuggles a letter uh, with an official of the, of the king to, to Babylon, and he gives instructions, a, a brief instruction uh, to the people of Judah as to how they're now to live in the midst of exile. That's, that's where we are. So he, let's read verses 1 through 14 of Jeremiah 29. This is, this is the word of God. It says, This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King, King Jehoiakim and the queen mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the artisans, had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elisah, son of Shaphan, and to Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They're prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to you to, to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Let's pray together. God, thank you for giving us instruction for not leaving us to ourselves, for speaking into history so that we might be able to have instruction. Lord, thank you that you 
work as well, not just, not just in our reading of it, by the power of your Holy Spirit in helping us to understand and see what is here on this page. And so, God, I pray that you would be at work, your Spirit would be at work here this morning, and that you would apply the words to the people's hearts this morning, to my heart first and then to everyone who is here, the words that you want to be heard. I pray that you would make it plain, and that you would make it clear, and that you would do it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, it's not uncommon, <clears throat> and if you've had conversations with other Christians or you've thought about it a little bit yourself and you're, you consider yourself to be a Christian, it's, it's not uncommon to hear people discussing today this idea that, that Christians are under attack. The, kind of, the world in which we live is, is, is not just simply indifferent to Christianity, but increasingly hostile. Right? More, more and more people think, and, and, and in many cases I think with, with good justification, as if, as if Christians are living as a, almost as a persecuted people in exile. Similar, maybe, to, to how, how it's described here with the people of Judah in, in Babylon. Misunderstood, on the outside, in many cases, potentially oppressed. Now, it might be one thing just for Christians to say that, and some Christians can be, can be pretty whiny sometimes, and so you can kind of just, like, disregard it because they... They just seem to complain about everything. But, but I want you, it's interesting, somewhat ironically, someone who agrees with this assessment is the, the New York Times columnist, Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist, Nicholas Kristof. Now, earlier this year, he wrote a column in which he said and freely admitted, look, I've got, I've got, I've got almost nothing in common <laughs> politically, theologically, with evangelicals. That's, what, that's the term he used, right? I've got, no, I've got almost nothing in common with them. He said, yet he, he admits, he says, today, among urban Americans and Europeans particularly, he says, evangelical Christian, as a label, is sometimes used as a synonym for rube, right? an idiot, a fool. He says, in liberal circles, evangelicals constitute one of the few groups that it's safe to mock openly. And then he goes on to say that he thinks that's unfair. So now it's one thing for Christians to whine about being, people being mean to them, but it's another thing entirely when you've got Nicholas Kristof of the New York Times agreeing with you. You may actually be onto something. Right? The feeling of living as strangers in a foreign land, the feeling of being a cultural minority, of, of exile, not just a theory or a threat in many cases. It's now a very present reality. And as we'll see, this is not unexpected. This is actually exactly how Jesus and the writers of the New Testament, as well as God speaking to the people of Judah, anticipated it to be. Now, in the text we read this morning from Jeremiah, I want us to see that that reality of being strangers in a cultural minority in a foreign land, that was now dawning on the Jews in a very real way because they were not the dominant culture any longer, those that had been carried into exile in Babylon. Right? Jeremiah had been warning it, that it, warning that it would happen. He had been threatening it, but now it was real. Now, Jerusalem had not yet fallen in the historical context. The temple had not yet been destroyed. That wouldn't happen until 586 B.C., but, but first in 605 and then again in 597, you have this, these waves, these large numbers of Jewish leaders, nobility, economic leaders, uh, military leaders, royalty, influencers, artisans, these people, they were, they were systematically carried into exile out of Jerusalem and brought to Babylon. Right? That's the reality of the exile. That's what happened. But the real question 
is not so much are God's people in exile. Right? For, for, I mean, for them, there was, no, there was no debate about it whatsoever. But for us, I want to I just grant it for a second. Right? Even, even if you want to discuss that for a second, the real question that's being addressed here is not so much are God's people in exile. The real question is, if they are in exile, what do God's people do now? And that specifically is what verses 4 to 7 is, is about. And that's what I really want to focus on this morning. Because God gives some of the most clear and practical advice that I can imagine. For the Jews of the time, but also for Christians today. And if you're not sure whether you'd put yourself in that category, that evangelical Christian category, then I, mean, then I, want, you to, I, want, you, I think this is worth following along. Because the advice that God gives here, not really advice, commands, the commands that God gives here is not the, stereotypical, not the stereotypical advice that you might think you'd hear. Not, not, what, not what people who sometimes claim to be speaking on behalf of Christians would say about how you should react in a situation like this. It's not. It's very different. Right, so let's look, at, let's look at these commands. And then I want us to think through some examples of how those commands are lived out. And then I want us to make sure we understand the means by which we live out those commands. In other words, how do we find the resources to live those commands in daily life? Right, so the commands, some examples of them, and then the means by which we do that. Now, commands, first. First, actually, let me ask this first. What would be, what would be some of the common reactions that one might expect of a people in exile? What would some of the options be? How would you react to a situation like that? All right, a couple of things. One would be, one would be for a, a people in exile to go guerrilla, right? To start an underground insurgency, guerrilla warfare. In other words, you declare war against your oppressor. Open, active conflict. You fight back. Go guerrilla. Now, another option would be to go ghetto. And I mean that in the classic sense of the word ghetto, a separate community that functions outside of the, of the dominant society. Now, in some cases, ghetto is, is forced upon an exiled community. Right? They're intentionally, systematically marginalized and, and compartmentalized to sort of the sideline of, of society. That's true. But in other cases, the group that's in exile might be tempted to freely choose it. Right? So take your resources and withdraw from the, from the culture. Build the bunker. Right? Set up the compound. Wait until the end when God will bring his people out of exile. Because he promises that he will. Ultimately, that's what verses 10 to 14 are about. Right? Israel will be rescued. There will be return to their land. At the end of the current reality, there is there's hope that what is happening now will, will end. That's all true. And the people who advocate kind of a bunker mentality, they get that much right. But, but their answer to the question about what we do in the meantime is to simply just say, well, let's just hold on tight. Just wait it out. Keep your head down. Let's go into hiding, and someday it will all be better. Right? So you could go gorilla. You could go ghetto. Or one last option is you could go jello. Now, those of you who follow along with this kind of thing know that jello starts with J, gorilla and ghetto start with G. But gelatinous, which starts with G, just doesn't sound as good. So, we go, so you, could go, you could go jello. You could just kind of wiggle around and with no rigidity, take the form of whatever mold you're, you're put into. Just become like the culture. Right? Assimilate and abandon God and his, and his teachings. Or at least abandon 
the idea of God's, the exclusivity of God, the belief that, that he is, in fact, the one truth, abandon that way of thinking. Now, this, by the way, was the very smart intention of the Babylonians. Smart in, if you're building an empire. Right? They, they had given this a little bit of thought because they realized that if you actively oppress an exiled people, you can have, you can have the opposite effect of making them, uh, you could actually make them stronger. At least you make them matter. Right? And if you completely separate them, sort of cordon them off, you could potentially give them more opportunity to, to plot against you. Right? So they went, as a strategy, for the assimilation option. Right? That's what they did. When they extracted the best and the brightest from, from Jerusalem and they brought them to Babylon, they took them, they set them up. They took a number of them, they put them in the best schools of Babylon, not because they looked at these people and they said, oh, these poor Jews. Let's give them a quality education. I mean, it will help them with their self-esteem if they're going to live as people in exile. And that's not why. No, because the best way to undermine opposition was to assimilate them, indoctrinate them. Let them be the ambassadors for the great, wonderful culture of, of Babylon. And if you're in exile, it's tempting. Right? This, is, this, is how, this is how the argument would have gone. This is what Babylon would have said. And they might, in some cases, have said it very nicely. Right? This is what they would have said. They said, look, look, guys, Judaism has had its day. I mean, Yahweh has had his moment. Jerusalem was a fine city. You guys have made a fine contribution to the region. But now, why don't we do this? Let's take the best of what Judaism has to offer, all the morals and the ethics and stuff like that, and let's combine that with the great new things of Babylon. Right? Look around, they'd say. It's a new world. Things keep moving. History keeps moving. After all, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history, do you? It's tempting, right? Actually, they're all tempting in their, in, in their own way. Go gorilla, fight back. There's an instinct in us that says yes. Go ghetto. It's tempting. There's an instinct in us that just wants to bury our head and go away and wait it out. Right? Or go jello. Maybe I should just give in, go along, because it's easier. But none of those are what God commands us to do. What's God command? Look at verses 5 and 6. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. What's he saying? He's saying you guys are going to be here a while. Right? Stop, stop renting. Settle down. Build a house. Plant a garden. Set up life. Okay? He says, he says get married. Have kids. Help your kids get married. Have grandkids. Right? Now, of course, if you just read 5 and 6, you could just simply end up with a go-ghetto kind of response. Right, because you could. I mean, you could do all those things in the midst of the compound. Right? That's, where you, that's where you build the houses, plant the gardens, and have kids and grandkids. Right? But verse 7 doesn't let you stay there because God keeps going. He says, and that's not all. He says, <clears throat> also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. In other words, while you're there, setting up houses and having kids and grandkids and planting gardens and all that kind of stuff. Work for the benefit of Babylon. And this word here, the word that's translated peace and prosperity in, the, in what I just read, other translations use the word welfare, that's the Hebrew word shalom. Right? And it's a hard word. Shalom's a really hard word to just translate into just one English word. It's, it's literally peace. 
I mean, if you just had to pick one English word for it, it'd be peace. But the concept is broader than just the absence of hostility, if that's what you mean by peace. Right? Shalom is it's, it's peace and plenty and healing and, and restoration. It's the perfect coming together of all things by the work of God for the glory of God. It, it's, it's perfect, perfect whole rightness. Right? And God is telling the exiles that their job is to seek the shalom of Babylon. Now, not in the sense that Babylon would be transformed into some eternally blessed city. Babylon would ultimately be destroyed. The Medes and the Persians would, would come in. They'd take over. The exiles would ultimately re- return home. That's what, that's what God promises through Je- Jeremiah. But, but so long as God's people were there, he's saying that he wants them to be an active blessing to the broader culture in which they find themselves. Do you see the missionary purpose in this? God did this, right? Babylon is the city to which I carried you into exile. God did this. Now, yes, there's a disciplinary aspect to it, and in in some sense, it was judgment on the people of Israel for for their rebellion against God. But but really, the real judgment, frankly, was reserved for those who stayed in Jerusalem. <laughs> They were the ones who, who, who were there and received the full, the, full, the full judgment of God because that's, Jerusalem was destroyed. In a sense, the ones in exile were, were removed. They were spared the destruction. You see, God, God blessed them by taking them out of the place of destruction. But he did it for a purpose. He brought them in significant part to be a witness to the goodness and truth of God in Babylon. Now, how are they to do that? He says, by actively loving them, by serving your neighbors, by by engaging in commerce and agriculture, by just doing the common things of life, by entering the real estate market, right? By living life, continually asking, what can I do to make this a better community? Even when that community sometimes seems to be hostile to you. James Davidson Hunter is a a sociologist, and he, he studies cultural trends and the reactions of of Christians to those trends. In one of his books on cultural change, he comments on this passage, and this is what he says. It summarizes everything we've been, we've been saying. Listen to what he says. He says, clearly, it would have been justifiable for the Jews to be hostile to their captors. It would have been natural enough for them to withdraw from engaging in the world around them. By the same token, it would have been easy for them to simply assimilate with the culture that surrounded them. Any of these options made sense in human terms. But God was calling them to something different. Not to be defensive against, isolated from, or absorbed into the dominant culture, but to be faithfully present within it. Faithfully present within it. He says he was calling them to maintain their distinctiveness as a community, but in ways that served the common good. Now, do you hear what Hunter is saying? God commanded them to choose the one option that doesn't make sense in human terms. He wanted them to be something different, something that wouldn't fit into the normal categories. He says, I want you to maintain your distinctiveness and your principle, but I want you to radically serve the good of others even when those others don't like you. That's the command. Yeah, and the reason why that, that command is hard to do is, and the reason why it sometimes doesn't make sense is because that can be a very hard balance to keep, a very difficult line to walk. Maintain principle, and radically serve the good of others, even when those others may oppose that principle, right? And it's hard to describe in a way that, that, 
that perfectly fits every different situation. And the only way that I, that I think we begin to get our heads around what that looks like is to look for examples of it. To look for examples of people who are doing it or, or people who are talking about it and say, yeah, that's it. That's, that's what I'm talking about. So let's do that. Let's look, at, let's look at some examples. And the most immediate, the most obvious example connected to the Jewish exile, of course, is found in the Scripture itself it, with Daniel and his friends. Right? Many of you remember the, the story of Daniel and Daniel's carried off with his, his friends. Daniel was one of these guys. Some of the community groups have been reading through the book of Daniel this fall, intentionally, to, to complement the, the, the sermon series here in Jeremiah. So I'm not going to go into, into great detail, but if you want an example of what it looked like for Jews to live like this in Babylon, read the book of Daniel. Because here's a group of young men, the best and brightest of Judah, taken into exile and given the best education in Babylon, right? trained to serve in the highest levels of the royal government. And Nebuchadnezzar's goal as king, of course, was to assimilate them. Right? But you can't read about Daniel and, and his friends and come away viewing them as jello. Right? They, they have real principle. Right? They drew lines. They refused to eat certain kinds of food. They refused to bow down to idols. They were not intimidated by threats of torture and death. No, they were, they were distinctive. And yet, they were actively engaged in pursuing the peace of Babylon. Daniel becomes a trusted advisor to the king over a long period of time. Right? He shoots straight with Nebuchadnezzar, sometimes tells him things that he doesn't want to hear, but obviously, if he's around that long, he does it in such a way that gains the king's trust and respect. Right? Daniel is committed to both the God of Jerusalem and because of that, to the Shalom of Babylon. Now, but what about today? Or what about in the in the Christian era. That, it's, it's valid for us to think that, not just because Nicholas Kristof makes the point, but, but because I think the Scripture makes the, makes, makes the connection for us. It's remarkable. In the New Testament, Peter, the Apostle Peter, he actually uses very similar language to Jeremiah when, he's, when he says to Christians in, verse, in, in, in his first letter in chapter 2, he says that you are to live distinctive lives as aliens and strangers in this world. In fact, Peter and, 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 and James both begin their letters by writing to those who are scattered, who are exiles. In other words, he's saying, they're saying, the writers of the New Testament are saying as well, God's people in the Christian age live like exiled Israelites in Babylon. Right? We must accept the fact that we, we oftentimes will live, they certainly did in the, in the days of the early church, under a civil authority that was hostile to the ways of God. But nonetheless, we need to live. We need to raise our families. We need to, to do it among our neighbors, and we need to be distinctive in our standards of conduct while at the same time being willing to radically work for the good of the community in which we live. Right? And the examples of this, they go all the way back to the earliest days of the Christian church in the Roman Empire. Right? Here's one that's preserved for us. Around the middle of the second century, there was a letter that we have that was written by an early Christian who's not identified, but he, but he writes to a man named Diognetus. It's commonly referred to as the letter to Diognetus, and that's why. <laughs> and, and one of the most fascinating things about, about the, the letter is when, is when the author describes the distinctive conduct of Christians. Because the letter was really meant to answer the question that was being posed to the writer. Okay, what did you find so attractive about these Christians? What was it that you found so so different 
And so he's responding. He said, this is, this is what I found. Listen to what he writes. They live in their own countries, but only as aliens. Right? They share in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is their fatherland, and yet for them, every foreign, every foreign land is a place that they can call home. They marry like everyone else, and they beget children, but they do not cast off their offspring. They share their board, that's their room and their shelter, right? They share their board, their food and shelter. They, they share their board with each other, but not their marriage bed. They busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, but in their own lives, they go far beyond what the laws require. They love all men, and by all men are persecuted. They're poor, and yet they make many others rich. They're completely destitute, and yet they enjoy complete abundance. Isn't that remarkable? I mean, do you see what, do you see what he's doing? He's listing this series of characteristics that one would assume to be opposites. How can you have both of those things? How can you... How can someone be both of those things? And yet, the, the writer of that letter is saying, that's what a Christian is. It's something different. It's a, in, other words, in other words, Christianity, the Christian creates a new category. It, it's, not, it's, not, it's not the standard category that, that the world is used to trying to force a person into, a completely new category. Right? Christians, this is what Diognetus was saying, Christians have a radical commitment to sexual purity, but not in an aesthetic sense where they, where they run out. No, they have, they have an amazing commitment to marriage and childbearing. At that time, that, that wasn't something that, that was a new category. They didn't just obey the law. They sought an even higher standard of integrity. They were even more civically loyal than those who didn't believe in the God that they believed in. They considered themselves to be citizens of heaven, and yet they were model citizens of, the, of whatever country in which they lived. They were insulted, but they loved people anyway. They were poor, but when they were poor, they gave even more to other people. Right? It's a completely new category. And we need to do the same thing. See, the world assumes that it, that it knows exactly what a Bible-believing Christian is like. And most of the time, it's a negative a negative assumption. In most cases, in most cases, what they mean when they assume it is, is that, is that they're filled with, they're just mean people. They're filled with hate. See, what we do, what we need to do in our cultural moment is create that new category. And the way that we do that is to live in such a way that defies simplistic characterization. Right? Go back to Nicholas Kristof for a minute, the New York Times. Right? Remember, he said that despite the fact that he had nothing in common politically, theologically, with, with, with evangelicals. He says he none, nonetheless feels that the liberal caricature of evangelicals is incomplete and unfair. Those are his words. Right? And he says that he personally, he finds it offensive to see good people derided. Now, it's easy. Now, like, we, you can just step back and just kind of say, see, I knew it. He's right, being persecuted. But you miss the point if you don't listen to why why he thinks it's unfair, but what, what's challenged his, his, his steroid? What, what's challenged him in his thinking? This is why. He says that he, it's because everywhere he's traveled around the world, he's been truly awed by those I've seen in so many remote places combating illiteracy and warlords and famine and disease. You see, it's because, it's because he's seen Christians breaking the stereotype of what he would think that they should, should be like. He says... 
he says it's certainly true that there are secular people around the world doing heroic work. He says, I don't want to discount that. But then he says, I must say <laughs> that a disproportionate share of the aid workers that I've met in the wildest places over the years, long after anyone sensible has evacuated, have been the evangelicals, the nuns, and the priests. Those are Christoph's words. Right? Long after anyone sensible is gone, why are they still there? What is it that's different about them? See, it's a new category. And truthfully, Christoph, he has no way to explain the tension, but it's fascinating to see how the tension arises in him. Right? Now, what about closer to home? All right, what about here at Faith? Right, er, here's an example. Earlier this year, just here's an example of how the thinking works. Right, earlier this year, our church was approached by the Mary Campbell Center, a long-term residential care facility for adults with disabilities. It's just around the corner from, from Faith. We were approached by the Mary Campbell Center, and they asked us if we would be willing to conduct a worship service at the Mary Campbell Center on Sunday afternoons at least once a month. Now, the Mary Campbell Center is not, it's not a Christian facility. It has, no, it has no religious, no spiritual affiliation. But they came to us because, because two, of their, two of their residents are, are members here and because they've seen us. They've seen us interacting with their residents over the years because we have a relationship, because we've repeatedly gone either ourselves or sent others there without any specific agenda, just simply to be with people, to, to love them, to, to play games with them, to communicate through our presence with them that we believe that they deserve dignity and respect because they're made in the image of God and because they're a part of our community. Right? And so they asked us, would you be willing to do this? And our elders responded with enthusiasm, said, yes, this is something that, that we should do. Now at the time, when we first started having the discussion and I was talking to people about it, good questions were raised. They said, okay, where, now where does, this, where does this come from? <laughs> like, like how, do we, how do we decide to do this and not something else, some, not something other, some other type of ministry. Right? And they're good, they were good questions. People weren't asking these questions because they didn't like people with disabilities or because they didn't like worship. No, they were good, just valid questions. They just honestly wanted to know, okay, with limited resources and limited time, right, how do you decide what to do and what, and what not to do? And I'm not suggesting that the elders do this perfectly all the time, and I'm not even suggesting that you might have a you might have different views about specific instances, but this is, the, this is how it worked. And the answer is what our elders try to do is apply a Jeremiah 29 grid. In other words, say, okay, is this something that would allow us to maintain a biblical principle and demonstrate our love for the broader community? To, to do something that if people look at what's happening, it creates a new category. Where they look at it and they say, huh, that's not exactly what I would have expected, right? That's not what I think these, I didn't think these people were like that. And in the case of the Mary Campbell Center, as you kind of listed, we looked at all those questions, and overwhelmingly the answer was yes. This is an opportunity for us to seek the shalom of our community, while without compromising in any way the biblical principle and standards to which we would hold. Now, each of us in our own lives then need to do the same thing. We need to create our own examples. Right? And that's, that's hard. You need to look, you need to evaluate every opportunity you have, every choice you make, but where you spend your time, where you use your money, and you need to put it through a Jeremiah 29, 4-9 grid. Right? Because, because if we, like the people in Judah, are a people in exile, and the Apostle Peter tells us that we are, that we shouldn't be shocked and surprised when the world works against us, when things don't go our way, when we face opposition, 
Right? That's what the Bible teaches us will happen. And we shouldn't lose hope because, like verses 10 to 14 tell us, God has everything under control. Ultimately, it's going gonna, it's gonna to lead to ultimate restoration. But God commands us in the meantime to maintain our principle but to seek the shalom of the city, of the community. And we have lots of examples of what that looks like. So commands, examples, and now finally, briefly, but critically, the means. Because right? if we don't talk about this, you can get motivated. But I, I mean, I guarantee you, by the time lunch is over and you're sitting in the sunshine, you'll, you'll have lost all, you'll, you'll just be tired. You'll be thinking about all the things that you already have to do. And you'll be tired. You, won't have any, you, won't, you don't have any ability to kind of keep this up on your own. And, and this is where it's important to note, again, the fact, this is why we read it, that the promise of verses 10 to 14 follows the command of verses 4 to 7. Right? We, we can't look at the whole thing in, in detail, but look at just verse 11 for a second. Look at verse 11. I, I went, when I was in college, I was involved in a Christian organization. We had t-shirts that had this verse on it. Many of you are very familiar with this verse. It's a life verse for many people, but this is why it's here. Look, read it. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. This is why it's here. Do you see that word prosper or welfare in other translations? That's the same word as verse, verse 7. That's shalom. In other words, seek the shalom of Babylon because you yourself have been given the promise of shalom. Right? You have the resources to seek the peace and the wholeness and the restoration of the, of the culture around you because you have been provided with the peace and the wholeness and the restoration of God. That's where it comes from. And this passage, perhaps uniquely in all the Old Testament, gives us the path to how that, how that ultimately works out and how that ultimately happens. The Old, the Old Testament scholars will tell you that the command that God gives in verse 7 here to pray for the peace of Babylon would have been mind-blowing to the Jewish exiles of the time. Right? Babylon was a hated enemy of the Jews. Right? The, the, the culture openly mocked and ridiculed the God in whom they believed. And yet, here God is saying, I want you to seek the good of your enemies and pray for your oppressors. Right? They, that, would have, that would have blown their minds. Almost sounds like something Jesus would have said. Because he did. <laughs> right? Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. That's exactly what Jesus says. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Right? See, the command is the, is the same. Now, note, note that Jesus first assumes that we will have enemies, that we will be persecuted. And in his other teaching, he goes on to pretty much guarantee that that's going to happen. Right? In other words, Jesus says, as well as Peter, you're going to be a people in exile. But like Jeremiah, God through Jeremiah, he tells the people what to do. He says, here's what you do. You love them. You pray for them. Even when they don't love you. Even when they don't seek your good. Right? But, but, but see, with Jesus, God takes it one step further. Right? Because Jesus doesn't just command the love for our enemies. Jesus actually does it. And he does it in a way that actually redefines <laughs> that concept of enemy. Right? We, we, we're, we're used to thinking, and so far in what we've been talking about, we're used to, the enemy is out there. Right? But there is no greater example, if you're looking for examples, there's no great example in, in history of someone seeking the shalom of his enemies than Jesus hanging on the cross. On the cross, he literally prays for those who put him there. He says, Father, forgive them. 
And on the cross, he does the most radically, categorically defying thing imaginable. He willingly dies in the place of his enemies. He takes the wrath of God so that I can have the peace of God. Jesus takes the hostility so that we can have the peace and the prosperity, so that we can have the shalom. And and then then do you see... If that's what Jesus does, then you see how, that, how, the, how the cross, how that, that empowers us to obey these commands, to seek the shalom of the culture around us, even when that culture is hostile to us. Because the cross forces us to realize that God sought our shalom even when we were hostile to him, even when we were the enemies. That's the gospel. And what the gospel does is it eliminates the viability of any of those other options. None of those other options work in light of the gospel. It's because when the gospel sinks in, you can't go gorilla. You can't can't be arrogant. You can't look at those people out there in the culture and hate them. You can't because, because you aren't able to hate them. The cross won't let you because it reminds you that you were the one who was out there. And God sought your shalom. In the same way, when the gospel sinks in, you can't go ghetto. Right? You, you can't just run away. You can't just say, I'm going to dig a hole. I'm going to hide. I'm not going to... The, because the sacrificial death of Jesus for his enemies, of which I was one, is now a message that I am compelled to share with other people. If this is really what God has done for me as an enemy, then it's a message that he wants me to share with other enemies. And in the same way, when the gospel sinks in, you can't go jello. You can't. You can't assimilate. Because the cross will not assimilate into any common cultural category. It doesn't fit. It creates the ultimate third category because the cross simultaneously upholds two things that otherwise would be thought to be, in, thought to be intention, things that, things that the world sees as completely mutually exclusive. Right? They, what's the cross do? On the one hand, the cross shows us that there are strict and principled standards that are not negotiable. <laughs> the seriousness of sin, the holiness of God, right? the death of the Son of God demonstrates conclusively, it has to, why else would the Son of God need to die if sin was not so serious, if God's holiness was just something that could be brushed aside? Right? The cross says it better than anything else. And yet, on the other hand, the cross simultaneously says that there is an amazing self-giving sacrifice. It it, it shows us, unlike anything else, God's amazing mercy and love. It shows us a God who says, I will seek your peace. I will seek your prosperity. Even though you're my enemy, I will die for you. I will love you. I will love you to death. You see? Principled adherence to truth that nonetheless radically loves and sacrifices on behalf of those who at times will oppose us and persecute us. Right? That is the gospel. That is what makes us distinctive. Now, if, if you are a Christian, that is what you have personally experienced. And that is the power that you now have to be able to go and live in, in your community that way. Right? Whatever, whatever that community might be your home, your family, your neighborhood, your workplace, your school, whatever that community might be, that's the power that you now have. Now, if you're not a Christian, then the question is, do you have room for a new category like that? 
Will you consider the absolute uniqueness of this third category of the cross that God now puts before us? The the, the one thing that brings those things that are seemingly in tension to perfect resolution. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that you have given us what we do not deserve. Thank you that you have saved and rescued us, that you have sought our peace when we were your enemies. God, I pray for, for all of us because we live in a world where it is very often very difficult to, to work out and to live out these commands. And yet I pray that you would give us wisdom to do it, that you would prevent us from falling into the common reactions, that we would truly look around us and love because Christ has loved us. And so we pray that you would empower what we cannot do, that you would do it for your your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and...